Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host on an ongoing basis. Today, I am joined by Greg. He's currently the permanent guest co-host for the time being. Greg, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Uh, So if you like the show and you would like to support it, there are many ways that you can do that. You can like, rate, or subscribe wherever you happen to get podcasts. You could join our email newsletter. You can do that at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. That is totally free. You could use our discount code at bulksupplements.com. If you use the code SBSPOD, you get 5% off your entire order. And of course, you could also download and use Macrofactor, the diet app that we created, Uh, It does have a free trial, so there's uh, no risk. You can try it out, see if you like it, and go from there. Now, another way to support us uh, is by subscribing to the Mass Research Review, and that is going to be a huge focal point of today's show. Uh, Right now, uh, at the time you're listening to this episode, uh, there's a big sale going on for the Mass Research Review. It is our annual anniversary sale and this is a special one because it's the five-year anniversary of the mass research review Um, i don't consider the first couple years to be necessarily part of the mass canon because i wasn't involved yet so the five-year anniversary there's kind of an asterisk there it's like five-ish years but really kind of three more or less but um anyway in today's episode, we're going to go through the best of mass issue, um, which is basically we gathered up all of our favorite articles from the last year, and we actually put out a PDF that is freely available. So if you go to strongerbyscience.com slash mass best of with a hyphen between those three words, uh, you can download the best of mass issue, see if you like it. And if you do like it, uh, we think you should consider subscribing to it. Um, And and like I said, during this sale, these are going to be the best prices of the year. The sale is currently ongoing, and it ends on Tuesday, May 3rd. So if you subscribe to Mass during the sale, uh, the price points are $21 per month. If you do a month-to-month subscription, uh, $209 per year. Or you can get a lifetime membership, a lifetime subscription for six ninety nine. Uh, if you're an existing member and you want to upgrade to a lifetime subscription during the sale, the upgrade price is five hundred and ninety nine U.S. dollars. Um, so, like I said, a huge part of today's podcast content is that we're going to go through some of our content from the best of mass over the last year. Um, and what's really nice is if you hear that you know, some of these conversations and you think they're interesting, you can go in, download the issue and read the, the actual articles to get even more detail on some of the topics we're discussing here. We're going to go through about half of the best of mass issue. The other half is supposed to be discussed on iron culture. I, I believe that's what we're doing, but I have no insight into what goes on in that side of the world. That That is what we were told was going to happen. So if it does, cool. If not, it's not on us. Yeah, theoretically, the Iron Culture podcast episode on May 2nd is supposed to discuss the other half of this uh, best of mass issue. If it doesn't, go check out their feed on May 2nd, if they don't cover the other half of this, just absolutely drown them in negative emails, negative reviews, mean-spirited comments, and 
all sorts of things like that. Uh, all right, before we get into the best of mass, uh, first of all, Greg, feats of strength, what do you have for us this week? Yeah, so uh, Christoph Weirbicki recently pulled the, as far as I'm aware, third heaviest deadlift of all time. So uh, number one, you have uh, Half Thor Bjornsson, who pulled 501 kilos. Friend of the show. Then you, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, we met him, that counts. It, it does, I suppose. Uh, then you have Eddie Hall, uh, I suppose, en- enemy of the show, maybe. Haven't met him. Uh, correct. Uh, and, you know, I don't think he and Thor get along. They they tried to beat each other up that one time, uh, and Thor seemed cool. So, sure, Eddie Hall, enemy of the show. We interrupted his dinner, and he didn't mind. That is correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, he pulled 500 kilos. And both of those guys are, uh, are huge individuals. I- I'm pretty sure they both weighed, like, north of 180 kilos, like north of 400 pounds when they hit those numbers. Uh, so... Number three all time, just in terms of who has locked out the heaviest weight, is now Christoph Weirbicki, who last time he competed, he was 104 kilos, like uh, 230 pounds. Much smaller guy. Uh, He pulled 490 uh, kilos or 1,080 pounds in the gym. Uh, As far as I could tell, it was a raw deadlift. I don't think he was wearing a suit. If so, he was wearing a suit that has very short legs under his normal clothes, but I'm pretty sure it was raw. Uh, he was wearing straps, but uh, the other two deadlifts also uh, had had straps as part of the package. Uh, so, you know, it counts in my book. The weights are the same regardless. Um, very impressive pull, and you can, uh, you can check that out in the show notes. You know, speaking of straps, um, I've gotten my fair share of negative feedback over the years. Certainly more positive than negative. Like, I don't want to make it seem like I'm... Uh, a victim over here getting hassled on the internet all day. But I'm not sure if I've gotten any feedback more vitriolic than when I suggested that strap should be allowed in powerlifting. Really? I, I, I really struck a nerve with some people on that one. That's interesting because I, I say that a lot and I've never gotten negative feedback about that. Well, I, I think I think people just don't like you. That's very That's very possible. <laughs> And I don't really disagree with them, to be honest. I like, mean, I don't, I'm not a big fan of me. I mean, I think there should be a straps division. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, if, yeah, there, there should be its own division. I, I don't think that it should just be like, hey, powerlifting is now always wearing straps or yeah. like it's straps versus non-straps in the same division. Obviously, that wouldn't be a fair, fair way to do it. Yeah, I, I think that one... You know, it just offer it would just offer a different avenue to compete. Like, dude, if you can compete in a multiply bench shirt, you can't tell me that that is fundamentally altering the movement of a bench press more than wearing straps would alter a deadlift. Like, it, straps can't take away from any theoretical sanctity of the sport more than gear would. And <laughs> yeah. I'll just note that's not taking a shot at gear. I think equipped powerlifting is cool as hell, as we've discussed on the podcast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't see a, a firm argument against it. And I think it would uh I, I think it would increase the accessibility of the sport. Like yeah. uh I, I know I know a handful of middle aged or older lifters who just have gotten nerve damage in in one or both of their arms or hands. And so like, you know, their their grip is just shot in one hand. And it's like, oh cool. Well I just I just can't deadlift in competition anymore. So, you know, I, I think a strap division would 
not harm the sport. I think it would increase the accessibility of the sport for people who have like medical reasons for grip issues. And uh, yeah, we, we'd see people hit some bigger numbers. And uh, I like big numbers. Absolutely. So uh, how about uh, Road to the Stage? Yeah, I don't I don't really have anything to report. Um, hit that milestone last week, hoping for hoping for the 50 pound milestone soon, but uh, has not happened in the last calendar week. Well, there you go. Yep. Uh, road to the Athens. I actually have a road, lot. Road to the Athens? Ro- yeah, the road to the Athens. Okay. Correct? Okay. Road to Athens. I've got a lot to say this week, uh, which is different than previous weeks, and it will probably be pretty obvious why that's the case. Um, I've been dealing with, like, pretty substantial pain in my, like, hip and pelvis for the last five years, uh, which... You know, every time I really get rolling with a lifting endeavor or a running endeavor, it kind of just always comes back to get me. Um, Five years, bouncing around from specialist to specialist. Haven't wanted to talk about it too much on the show because I think people only have a a certain amount of appetite for listening to someone say, hey, my hip hurts and I'm not happy about it. But um, anyway, it's been five years. It's been really challenging. And lately, it's been terrible, which is one of the reasons why Road to the Stage, I haven't had er, Road to Athens. I haven't had much to say because it's like, yeah, I can't really do much because my hip hurts like crazy and I wake up in pain every night. Uh, But I want to begin with a huge, huge, enormous shout out to Jason Yore. He is the physical therapist who's on our team of coaches at Stronger by Science. So this might sound like a sales pitch. I simply do not care. Uh, I am amazed at Jason's skill level. So like I said, five years, I keep bouncing from specialist to specialist. I have not gotten even a diagnosis, let alone a fix. Like, I just want to know what the deal is. Well, you you have gotten several diagnoses. Oh, I've got, yeah, I've I've gotten (laughs) every... You haven't gotten a correct diagnosis. That's a good clarification. (laughs) I've gotten so many diagnoses, none of which turned out to be even remotely plausible, right? And so at a certain point, I just got frustrated. I gave up and then I was in so much pain. I said, okay, I ungive up because now I'm frustrated by the pain. I go back in. Jason finally like just pinned me down and was like, Eric, what's going on? And like he met, he reached out to me on Facebook. I think after three Facebook messages across the span of five minutes, he was like, oh, yeah, this is what's happening. And then I Googled it and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's every symptom I have and no symptoms I don't have. Like, yeah, just it is what I have. Right. So uh, the short version is I've got a nerve entrapment issue um, and now I'm finally feeling pretty hopeful and optimistic about exercise because I feel like. I really have confidence that I know what's going on, which is the first step to figuring out, okay, so how do I modify my activity, find my entry point for exercise and start building up function from there and strengthening what needs to be strengthened and and kind of work from there. Uh, So I have like a mini coach's corner about how I'm currently training around my hip injury. Um, and so this isn't this is certainly not medical advice. This is just what I've been doing since getting an idea of what might be going on and what might be necessary. And these also, I should clarify, Jason helped me identify what's going on. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's put a pin in this. I'm gonna go see an orthopedic specialist. I might get some imaging done to figure out where the entrapment is occurring, because that would be very informative. 
So Jason did not give me this advice uh, in terms of what to do because I basically said, okay, let's revisit this once I consult with this orth- orthopedic specialist. So I'm not, if Jason is listening to this and like, yeah, that's not what I would have told you to do. Th- these are not Jason's recommendations. These are what I've put together with just based on how it's feeling. Uh, so my lower body work right now, almost exclusively focused on just rehabbing the hip a little bit, strengthening some of the muscle areas that seem to relieve symptoms and seem to be very weak relative to others. So I've been doing a lot of uh, hip flexion, uh, a lot of hip uh, adduction, and I've been avoiding anything that kind of forces my hip into a fixed flexed position. So any kind of machine that kind of puts me into deep hip flexion, I've been avoiding that like the plague, trying to keep things, uh, a lot of free movement, a lot of cable stuff, a lot of free weight stuff that, that is focusing on the hip flexors and the adductors. Um, lots of machine work right now, even for upper body, cause I'm trying to avoid excessive loading in lumbar flexion. So like even just things like picking up stuff from like a low, uh, plate tree, like picking up heavy plates. I've been, you know, uh, row machines that aren't particularly suited for my body shape. I've been avoiding anything that is causing a lot of loaded flexion or a lot of loading on a flexed spine until I can figure out exactly where the entrapment is. Cause there is a possibility it could be kind of closer into the spine, like in the, between the, the thoracic and lumbar region. So, uh, I've just been saying like, it's not that I'm not doing any, uh, spinal flexion at all. Um, it's just that I'm being very intentional about it. Like if I'm doing an exercise that involves it, that's fine. But I'm trying to just reduce that kind of mindless wear and tear of just like bending over awkwardly and picking things up and doing dumb stuff. Uh, why, are you, why are you smiling so much? I think you're going to get some some hate mail just about using the phrase wear and tear. Okay, fine. I don't care. Uh <laughs> I, I'm trying to be intentional about my movement, not scared about my movement. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like if I'm doing stuff that is uh, stressing the spine, then I want to be doing it intentionally w- with a high degree of focus on my movement. Uh, it's not that I think my spine and hip are made out of glass. It's that in this acute phase, until I get the uh, the symptoms to really calm down and some of that pain to calm down, I don't want to push it too much yet. Mm-hmm. Once those symptoms are are relieved and I have a little bit more consultation with the ortho specialist, mm-hmm. I'm going to have a lot more confidence determining what degree of loading is going to be appropriate. So it's just about that, that short-term phase of removing load uh, so that some of those symptoms go away. Then we'll add the load back in once we identify the appropriate place to kind of jump back into some of, the, some of those types of loading. Uh, when it comes to cardio... Uh, I forgot a really important lesson um, that I was reminded of, and that is that ball is life. I'm a hooper now. Um, I haven't touched a basketball in like 15 years, but uh, for some reason, like if I were to go out on a jog, like just endurance type running, uh, my hip gets really angry with me, but I can actually play basketball pretty okay. Um, just cause I, I think it's cause there's so much movement in different planes and different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, and posturally it's a little bit different. Uh, so I've been playing a lot of basketball, which has been fun. Uh, have not rediscovered my shot yet or my dribbling ability, but I'm sure that will come with time. 
my gym has a very cool machine. It's a rope climber. Have you ever seen those? Yeah. 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 It's I, I've been really loving it. I've been trying to find upper body modalities for cardio. Uh, and I've been really enjoying that a lot. Uh, and I've been doing, doing a lot of swimming as well. Um, so it's, it's really unique. Like I've noticed that my hip flexors are extremely weak. Uh, but swimming is cool because you can do a lot of hip flexion with a little bit of resistance from the water just to kind of build up the endurance of the hip flexors with a relatively short range of motion, which for me right now is very good. Like mm-hmm. I want my hip and my spine to be moving. I just want to be intentional with how much they're being loaded and in what ways they're being loaded. Yeah. So uh, there, there's certainly no fear of exercise. And in fact, a complete cessation of exercise actually makes symptoms worse for me or it's like doing a little is better than doing nothing, mm-hmm. but doing too much is worse than everything, yeah. you know? So I'm trying to find that sweet spot where I'm moving and, you know, getting my spine moving, getting my hip moving, uh, enjoying exercise, but not pushing it too hard. And, and for now I found a sweet spot and, uh, I'll probably revisit this list and kind of refine it once I have a better understanding of exactly what's going on and, and where that nerve entrapment is a, a occurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll get with, you know, Jason and, and some other folks and figure out what to do. But for now, uh, the road to Athens is looking positive. I'm obviously not doing a lot of endurance running, but I'm doing exercise that will benefit me once I'm able to resume higher volume endurance running. So very exciting time. I'm really stoked about it. Well, sounds good. I'm, I'm excited for you. Uh, just from talking off air, I know that this is something that's been bothering you really for as long as I've known you. Um, so it's, it's good to hear that it sounds like, like real progress is being made and there is the potential for, uh, substantially greater progress to be made. Yeah. So I said, wear and tear, we, we nipped that in the bud. Is there anything else I need to get ahead of here to avoid the hate mail? Cause you're more, you're more in, <laughs> in tune with this stuff than I am. Um, let's see. So one thing to potentially get ahead of is now that I know you're playing basketball again, we're going to have to go put up shots as soon as we're done recording this. Uh, and so you might need to start weaving a narrative about how badly you got beat in horse and, and maybe weave a conspiracy theory about there being a setup that I only beat you so badly. Cause it's a goal that I'm comfortable shooting on. Like, there's... Well, the, the hoop that you shoot on is nine feet and 10 inches tall, and I shoot on a, a regulation 10-foot hoop. So that's done. Yeah, so so good work. You, you, you're you already weaving the necessary narratives to, to save face. So yeah, just uh, just be stewing on that a little bit more um, so, so that you'll be able to discuss it in a self-flattering way uh, during our next episode. Perfect. Yeah. And it, it was good that you called me out because wear and tear is kind of just like... Uh, a standard kind of verbal crutch, you know, but, but obviously bodies adapt to movement. They adapt to movement very well, but, Mm -hmm. but right now I am in that kind of, you know, when it comes to rehabilitating from an injury, there's kind of the acute phase and then the more chronic phase. And during the acute phase, you know, a, a big portion is just like stopping the things that seem to be exacerbating symptoms yeah. And so right now I'm almost taking the exercise approach of like, you know, I- I'm more the nutrition guy. You-, you hear about like an elimination diet where you're like, okay, I have some kind of GI shit going on right now. That's not good. Let me tighten up my list and start experimenting with foods and see what is bothering it. 
Mm-hmm. And so my whole thing is I want to get to a spot where all of my loading is very intentional and very thoughtful so that I can start to see, okay, like that, that type of loading on the spine is, is hurting. This type is not for now. And, mm-hmm. you know, we build up from there. Like I have no doubt that in the future I'll be squatting and deadlifting very comfortably. Like mm-hmm. I'm quite confident about that. Um, but it's all about finding your entry point and then building up from there with with movement and exercise. And I want to make sure that there's no ambiguity about like what exactly is causing these symptoms, yeah, you know? Yeah. So, so that's kind of what I'm getting at there. Uh, all right. So moving on, we've got uh, a segment that we've done on the show before. We don't do it very often <laughs> because we don't write enough articles. <laughs> It's a stronger by science article discussion. That is the segment type. And we did put up uh, an article fairly recently, which is called building muscle in a caloric deficit. And then a colon context is key. So this is an article that was pulled from the pages of the mass research review and republished on stronger by science. Um, But if you go to strongerbyscience.com slash muscle calorie or muscle caloric deficit, you can find this new article. Uh, and I did want to take a moment to talk a little bit about this article because it is featured in the best of mass issue. So uh, this article largely received uh, some some pretty positive feedback. I think it's uh, a topic that a lot of people are interested in these days because there are two camps that seem to be forming. There, There's the one camp that says if you try to build muscle and lose fat at the same time, you are wasting your time because you're chasing two rabbits at once. And when you try to chase two things at the same time, you usually don't catch either of them. So a lot of people like to uh, suggest that you have to focus on building muscle or focus on losing fat and do those sequentially in whatever order you choose. Uh, But a lot of people say, listen, there are maybe like four or five unicorns out there who can achieve recomposition, building muscle, losing fat at the same time. But it's so rare as to consider just off the table as a a viable option for your for your planning. Now, I take a different approach. I think that recomposition is a lot more feasible than than some would lead you to believe. And ultimately, uh, it comes down to the characteristics of the individual, right? So, uh, yeah, if you were to ask me what is the way to absolutely maximize my rate of muscle building, it wouldn't be to be in a caloric deficit, right? Mm-hmm. But um, so, so looking at it uh, on that level, of course, if you want to build muscle, easiest way to do it, lift like crazy, eat like crazy, gain a bunch of fat and muscle in the process, just eat to your heart's content, you are going to not leave any anabolic stone unturned. But obviously, then there's some fat gain associated, and sometimes people say, well, then I have to cut after that, right? Um, Again, if you wanted to maximize your rate of fat loss, it would be, you know, protein sparing modified fast, begin it yesterday, and just go with it, you know, until you get to your desired body fat. Not a very sustainable approach. You may threaten the loss of lean mass. I know it's called protein sparing, but that's more of a goal than a than a descriptor. Yeah, it's it's, it's an aspirational statement. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, the the question is, can we feasibly try to do both these things at once? And I think for a large number of people, the answer is yes. And like, for example, uh, sometimes people just boil it down purely to 
how many years have you been training? And they're like, you know what? If you've been training for more than three years, you cannot recomp. I've been training since I was 12. I'm 31. That's a lot of years. It's more than three. I guarantee I could recomp right now, right? With all the stuff I've been dealing with with my hip, I have been training, but not not training to an optimal degree. You know, there's no question in my mind I could tighten up my diet and training right now and achieve a pretty noteworthy degree of recomposition. I I have no question about that. Um, So what I tried to do in this article, I was reviewing a study. uh, So I started out by reviewing the study, and then I talked a little bit more about who could feasibly achieve recomposition in what circumstances and how would they go about doing that. And so with this particular article, I focused mostly on just uh, manipulating rates of weight gain and weight loss or manipulating energy balance. So I didn't go into every little detail about what promotes muscle building or what promotes fat loss. I kept it focused on energy balance and rate of weight change, basically. Uh, so let's start out with, with, uh, the study here. So, um, there, there was a meta-analysis here that was, let me find, who was it by? It was by Murphy and colleagues in 2021. It was called Energy Deficiency Impairs Resistance Training Gains in Lean Mass but Not Strength, a Meta-Analysis and Meta-Regression. And if you go to the article on Stronger by Science, the original meta-analysis is linked there as well. Uh, so what they were looking at is the impact of an energy deficit on trainees' ability, ability to gain strength and build lean mass in response to resistance training. And the short version of what they found is that energy deficits uh, did lead to significant impairment of lean mass gains uh, and a non-significant impairment of strength gains. Uh, What they found was that basically being in a deficit seemed to impact lean mass changes a lot more than it impacted strength changes. Uh, And they found that this was dependent on the size of the deficit. So as the energy deficit grew by 100 calories a day, lean mass tended to drop by 0.031 units. And that unit is going to seem very arbitrary. But what that basically uh, alludes to within the paper is that once the deficit got to a level of about 500 calories per day, that was predicted based on the meta regression model to fully blunt lean mass gains. Now, that is not a rule of nature. Like th- that is not a physical law that a 500 calorie per day deficit rem- fully removes your ability to gain lean mass. That is just a characteristic of the data set and the regression model used to fit that data set. So it's really important to keep that in mind. I think uh, if you open up the article, if you have an opportunity to look at it, I think the really telling things, the really informative things come in figure two and figure three within my article, um, not the original paper. So figure two basically shows a whole bunch of different effect sizes study by study, and they look at training with an energy deficit versus training without an energy deficit, and they look at uh, changes in lean mass and changes in strength in, in both scenarios. And what's what really jumps out to you is when you look at training without an energy deficit, uh, the change in strength at the group level in, in all these different studies uh, pretty consistently goes up, right? People get stronger when they do resistance training and they're not in an energy deficit. And the pretty much the same thing was observed in the studies with an energy deficit. Like there was 
one, maybe two studies that showed a slight group level decrease in strength, but the vast majority of studies, it didn't really look like the deficit did much in terms of impairing strength gains. And that makes a lot of sense. Greg, you've done a lot of really good writing about all the various factors that contribute to changes in strength. And when we look at, you know, something like a short-term 8, 10, 12-week study with a really focused strength training program, you do not need uh, participants to build substantial amounts of muscle in order to get stronger. There are many other factors influencing strength gains across that type of, uh, of timeline. Yeah, over like three months, the amount of muscle you build isn't going to be particularly predictive of strength gains, but over... 10 years, the amount of muscle you build will probably be pretty predictive. Right. And, you know, this was largely looking at some of those short-term studies, your kind of classic resistance training controlled trial. Now, things look a little different in that figure when you look at changes in lean mass. So when you look at changes in lean mass in training without an energy deficit, again, changes where either, you know, not much was happening. Sometimes we see that in a lifting trial, people get stronger and lean mass just kind of stays the same pre to post. Um, Generally speaking, lean mass either didn't change or it went up. I don't think there were any studies at the group level that reported a negative change in lean mass. Uh, That was not the case when you, when they looked at studies where people were training with an energy deficit, there were actually, uh, actually, more than half of the studies reported a group level decrease in lean mass. Uh, now, how much lean mass you lose uh, over uh, the course of a resistance training program, of course, there are a ton of factors that go into that. Um, but but without question, this study or this meta-analysis showed that in aggregate, you know, certainly training in an energy deficit makes it more of an uphill battle to gain lean mass. Not necessarily impossible, but it does have some degree of hindrance or impairment when it comes to building lean mass. Um, But, you know, these are kind of your typical resistance training controlled trials. It's very different from working one-on-one with a coach and saying, let's tailor everything to optimize lean mass retention during this cut. You know, usually they're pretty generic programs, pretty generic diet advice, uh, not individualized and hyper-specific programming that is optimized and tailored to to optimally impact lean mass. Uh, Figure three is another interesting thing here. So figure three plots on the x-axis, the size of the energy deficit ranging from, you know, zero calories per day all the way up to 1500, actually a little bit above 1500 calories per day, which is a damn, that's a big, that's a big deficit. That's not fun. No. Um, (laughs) And then on the y-axis, there's changes in lean mass expressed as effect size units. So basically, uh, you know, standardized uh, mean change. And what was interesting about this is, like I said, they they fit a meta regression line to this data, which crossed zero at 500 calories per day, which indicates a deficit of 500 calories per day was predicted to result in zero change in lean mass. Deficits larger than that were predicted to actually yield a reduction in lean mass. Um, But as you can see from the data, if you look at the the figure, if you happen to pull it up, uh, it's kind of like when we talk about that uh, meta-analysis or the meta-regression about protein intake Mm -hmm. by Morton and colleagues, where it's like, we can identify a breakpoint, but when you look Mm -hmm. at the individual data points, you do not see 
a dramatic area where numbers just fall off a cliff. Like it's not like everybody was doing just fine and then they hit 500 calories per day and, you know, lean mass gains tanked. It's a little bit messier than that. So like, for example, the second highest effect size, the second largest effect size, um, you know, w- w- was actually, uh, or actually, let me take that back. The The basic point is that there's not a clear drop off, you know, it's as, as there, there's definitely a relationship here as the deficit gets bigger, lean mass changes uh, are harder and harder to come by. And so what that means is if you're trying to achieve recomposition, you want to keep that general relationship in mind. You don't want to use that 500 number as a law of physics, you know, because that would be just not at all reflective of the certainty of that number. Um, but you definitely want to keep in mind the fact that if you're trying to build muscle while you're losing fat, you're going to be in an energy deficit. And the larger that deficit gets, the more challenging it becomes to kind of thread that needle and achieve appreciable increases in lean mass while you're achieving that fat loss along the way. So uh, ultimately, my, my conclusion after looking at this meta-analysis and some, uh, some of the related research is uh, recomposition is certainly possible. Uh, and for a lot of people, probably more than you think, it is a feasible goal. Um, and it, it, you are making some degree of sacrifice when you set out to do recomposition. You're kind of accepting on the front end. Yeah, I probably could gain lean mass faster if I were in neutral or positive energy balance. But what you're trying to do there is, uh, you know, kind of find that sweet spot where you're gaining lean mass at a rate that you're still happy with while also losing fat mass along the way. It it can be a very convenient and very time efficient way to make some pretty dramatic body composition change without having to feel like you are fully locked into one route versus the other. Um, So if you check out the article, you'll see that in the, there's kind of a practical application section where I go into detail about how you would adjust energy balance for a variety of different goals. And the way that I tried to quantify that, I think the most uh, straightforward and simple way to quantify that navigation of energy balance or the manipulation of energy balance is just by looking at change in body mass. So the rate of weekly or monthly weight gain or the rate of weekly or monthly weight loss. You know, I I think that's the easiest way to look at it. And I don't want to go through and read every possible permutation here because the most likely scenario is I'll just get some numbers jumbled and then cause more confusion. Uh, So to to get a look at it, so I go through in detail, how would you adjust your rate of weight gain or rate of of weight loss if you're training specifically for strength or specifically for recomposition or specifically for hypertrophy or specifically for fat loss? And so there are some slightly uh, different guidelines for each of those different scenarios. And uh, I also, in, in the process of giving those guidelines, I address the fact that your training age or, or your relative uh, training status is an important factor that modifies how quickly you want to gain or lose some weight. So uh, if you have an opportunity, I definitely recommend that you check out that article to get some of that uh kind of goal-specific advice about what rate of weight loss or rate of weight gain would be right for you based on what you're trying to achieve. Um, but but the general kind of take-home point is a lot of people say that recomposition is either impossible or just simply not feasible. 
And for a large percentage of lifters, I think that that's simply not true. I, I think it is possible and indeed is actually feasible. Um, it's especially true if you've got plenty of body fat to lose and you're relatively untrained. In that situation, there's a very high likelihood that you can get in an energy deficit that is large enough to get the ball rolling in terms of fat loss without dramatically impairing your ability to get stronger or build muscle. Now, if you are shredded, you're near your genetic ceiling in terms of strength and muscularity, in that situation, I, I will concede that you know dramatic recomposition is probably a bit of a long shot. And that really gets at something that we mentioned back when we were talking about uh, when we were talking about the interference effect, mm -hmm. you know, we, we had mentioned that like, generally speaking, it doesn't seem too scary, but like, if you are just absolutely at your genetic limit for muscularity and you are just infinitely well-trained in terms of muscularity and hypertrophy, then you might want to, it, it might be a more notable thing. Like if, if you're super specifically optimized for one particular outcome, then yeah, adding in a, a ton of cardio might might move the needle a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, or you know, if you are on on the on the flip side, if you are really 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 super well trained for endurance training, and then you shift things and and kind of reduce some of your endurance training and add in more lifting. If you're not careful about using those really carefully, then you might you might be losing something by sacrificing some of that endurance training because you are already kind of at a peak, like you have really optimized your training adaptations. But, uh, you know, for most of us, especially when it comes to this recomposition conversation, I think a large percentage of people are somewhere in the middle, you know, where they're not absolutely shredded and as muscular as they're ever going to be. Most people are kind of in that middle range where they're like, yeah, I could probably stand to lose a little bit of body fat. And I'm def I definitely have some room to go before I reach my muscular potential. For a lot of people, I think recomposition is, is a pretty feasible thing to shoot for. And in the article, I, I kind of lay out uh, how you would set your your target rate of weight change in order to make that feasible. Cool. Yeah, so I, I have uh, just just one thing to add about this. So, um, so I used to believe back in the day that it was uh, impossible or virtually impossible to gain muscle in a... Uh, e even like a small caloric deficit, uh, if if you weren't just completely untrained, and then maybe like four or five years ago, uh, Eric Helms and Lawrence Judd wrote an article that, uh, in part, what it was talking about was uh, the feasibility of of recomposition like this simultaneously losing some fat, gaining some muscle, uh, and, and I remember reading that and being like, okay, like this. This article makes a pretty good case for uh, for being able to gain muscle in a caloric deficit being something that is possible. And so at that point, I looked back and I was like, okay, what what arguments against this did I previously find convincing? Like when when I had previously been exposed to the viewpoint that it was impossible to gain muscle in a caloric deficit if you had any sort of prior training experience. Um, you know, what What was the evidence and line of reasoning backing that up? And it was basically two things. Uh, one is, uh, is people would cite studies with trained lifters training in an energy deficit. They lose some weight and, you know, they um, like their their lean mass uh, 
the, there wasn't a significant change, but like nominally it was a decrease. It would be like, you know, a reduction of 0.5 plus or minus 0.7 kilos. And they're like, oh, look, like these guys lost a little bit of lean mass. And it's like, oh, guess what? Standard deviations exist. Like a third of these people did gain at least some trivial amount of lean mass. So, you know, I, I was uh, reading that content before I understood what a standard deviation was. Uh, and in hindsight, it is embarrassing that I found that convincing and embarrassing that people would write those articles in the first place uh, and and expose to the world that they also uh, did not know what a standard deviation was. And second, the the just kind of like rationalist line of argumentation would be like, well, look, you know, um, you're not just like inertly storing energy in muscles. Like it takes energy to synthesize these proteins. So if you're not putting enough energy into your body, there's not going to be enough energy to synthesize these new contractile proteins. Therefore, it's impossible to gain muscle. And it's like, okay, let's let's stop. Let's rewind. Let's think about this for a second. Uh, if if being in an energy deficit meant that you did not have sufficient energy to synthesize new proteins, that would mean that you just die. Like, you you uh, turn over your entire red blood cell pool if memory serves, like, once a month. So it's like, oh, fuck, man. I don't have enough. I'm not in an energy surplus, so I don't have energy to synthesize new proteins. Therefore, every time I need to make some more fucking hemoglobin for my red blood cells, I just can't. I can't do it. There's there's no extra energy lying around to do it. I can't turn turn over my body's proteins anymore. I guess being in a deficit for a month means you die. Or, which yeah, is you, you just like become severely anemic and you will never heal a wound. Exactly. Yeah. And so like obviously that doesn't happen. And so it's like, well, okay, if if that line of thinking doesn't apply to any other proteins in your body, why would it necessarily apply to contractile proteins in your muscles, you know? Yeah. Definitely. So anyway, I I kind of had that that come to Jesus moment several years ago and realize that the, you know, the, the evidence does suggest that it is quite a bit harder to build muscle in a yeah. deficit and you, you certainly won't build as much, but the arguments, the arguments and evidence that people will marshal to argue that it is impossible to build muscle in a deficit. It's just thin gruel. Like it's, yeah. it's lazy thinking and weak evidence. Absolutely. Yeah. It's you're, you're not gonna, you're, you're unlikely to optimize your rate of muscle gain or lean mass gain in a mm -hmm. deficit, but appreciable lean mass gain absolutely can occur. And the reason I say that is because it's been documented in the research many, many times. It, it's one of the few things that I still hear as being impossible sometimes. And I'm like, I can, I can just show you where it happened. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, it, it's odd the, the way that people will matter of factly say that it's impossible. I, I can't think of something that is so frequently asserted as being impossible that has so much empirical evidence showing that it occurred, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but anyway, uh, one other thing I should mention um, on this topic, a lot of times people say, OK, so uh, caloric surplus is good for building muscle. How much is enough? And unfortunately, we really don't know. Um, I, I'm not aware of really good evidence indicating, you know, theoretically, there should probably be some degree of diminishing returns where, you know, at a certain point, the the kind of cost benefit of a bigger caloric surplus, it's just like, all right, you're just 
you're gaining a tremendous amount of fat mass relative to your lean mass. You've pretty much maxed out the benefit there. We don't really know where that is. So a lot of times the question of how high to go with a surplus, if you're just purely intent on bulking is like pretty much what's your comfort level with fat gain. Um, and, and how big of a hurry are you in? If you're in a huge hurry, then that would kind of push you toward a higher surplus in terms of building muscle. Uh, but if you're very averse to gaining fat, then that would push you to a, to a smaller surplus for now. That's kind of the best we can do. Uh, all right, Greg, I'm going to turn things over to you. I know you've got a lot to cover with your half of the best of issue. And then if, if we have some time left over, I'll just briefly run through my other contributions. Cool. All right. So uh, I've got five things I want to talk about. And if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that if I'm trying to cover five pieces of content, there's a good chance that's going to run like an hour and a half. So I'm, I'm going to try to scoot and, uh, and be as efficient as possible. So uh, my first article in the best of issue, the title is a heuristic for estimating energy expenditure during resistance training. And the title of the study this came from was uh, acute behavior of oxygen consumption, lactate concentrations, energy and energy expenditure during resistance training, colon comparisons across three intensities by Zhao and colleagues. And so uh, what this study did, in essence, is um, it it helps us answer a a practical question that there's surprisingly surprisingly little direct research on and surprisingly few good heuristics about, and that is uh, attempting to estimate how much energy you burn during resistance training. And so the reason that this is a problem is that if you are someone who, for whatever reason, wants to attempt to quantify how much energy you're burning during exercise, there are uh, good, reliable heuristics for endurance training. So um, the the old chestnut of you burn about 100 calories per mile you traverse if you're walking or jogging, that holds up pretty well. Um, if you're a serious cyclist, you can just get a power meter for your bike and then just use some assumptions about your your gross energy efficiency to kind of get an idea of how much energy you're burning on, on the bike. Um, but when it comes to resistance training, there aren't good heuristics. And, you know, if you use a wearable device to try to estimate your, your energy expenditure during exercise, the research shows very consistently <laughs> that uh, like smartwatches, Fitbits, stuff like that, do do a really poor job of estimating your your energy expenditure, and there aren't good heuristics like that. You know, like a uh, hundred calories per mile. Like, okay, but you know, w- what is my energy expenditure per uh, unit of tonnage or per unit of time spent in the gym? Um, as far as I'm aware, there aren't good heuristics for that. So th- this study, I think, uh, helps us at least get a decent ballpark answer to that question. So in this study, uh, they've recruited 15 trained men, and all of them went through three different workouts, uh, two sets of 15, three sets of 10, and six sets of five for like nine or 10 different exercises in a full body resistance training session. So so three different sessions performed in a randomized order. Uh, They did some chest press, pec deck, squat, lat pulldowns, bicep curls, tricep extensions, hamstring curls, and crunches. Uh, So... They, they always had two minutes of rest between sets. 
and they, um, they, they wore a mask the whole time to measure gas exchange, to estimate total energy expenditure during the sessions. Uh, and so, so the researchers were interested in uh, total energy expenditure during the sessions and then also energy expenditure per unit of time. Uh, and the, the six sets of five session, uh, obviously people were doing more sets during that with, with a higher total load, but most importantly, just more sets. So those sessions took the longest uh, and unsurprisingly wound up resulting in the total, uh, the highest total energy expenditure, largely just because when they're measuring gas exchange, uh, that includes, you know, during rest periods as well. So your body's burning some amount of energy just to stay alive. Uh, and so, you know, if you're measuring energy expenditure over a longer total duration, more total energy will be burned. But then when they expressed uh, all three workouts in terms of energy expenditure per minute, they were all very similar. Um, and what they saw is that across all three workouts at different training intensities, different uh, different amounts of reps per sets, uh, all three of those workouts resulted in, on average, about six kilocalories being burned per minute, uh, and with a relatively tight range as well, from about four to about eight kilocalories per minute. So I think that gives us a decent heuristic uh, that people in the gym are burning probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about six calories per minute. And then when I thought about when I thought about it a little bit more, I I like the idea. Uh, so I I like the idea of that being an estimate and being kind of a self-correcting estimate uh, in most contexts. So first, just kind of to pass the the sanity check, like does six kilocalories per minute seem to make sense? So you can compare that to uh, something that is much better understood. So energy expenditure um, during uh, during endurance training or just walking, and basically six cal- kilocalories per minute would equate to walking at about three point six miles per hour, or like a sixteen seventeen minute mile, which which feels about right. Um, it's a brisk walk. Yeah, yeah. So like a, a brisk walking pace. Uh, burning about as much energy as a resistance training session, that that feels about right to me. So, you know, during a training session, like obviously, like maybe you do a hard set of squats, that's obviously very energy intensive, but then you're going to rest. And, and by the end of your rest interval before your next set, uh, you've probably like calmed down to the point that like now, whatever you're experiencing is is an intensity of uh, metabolic and respiratory output that's way lower than it would be for walking. And so, it, you know, it, it undulates. But over the course of a session, can I see resistance training being about as energy intensive as a brisk walk? Yeah, I think so. So that that passes the sanity check. Um, and then in terms of it being self-correcting, like if you're doing, if you're doing like really heavy, high-volume training. So we, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, the amount of energy you burn resistance training uh, scales quite well with the total amount of just physical work being performed. So if you squat uh, 200 pounds for a set of 10, you're burning about a, th- a third as much energy as someone who's squatting 600 pounds for a set of 10. Like you're... Uh, <laughs> 
If, if anyone who's strong enough to do 600 for 10, you're fucking dead at the end of it. Uh, whereas, you know, if 200 for 10 is, is your 10 rep max, you're probably breathing hard at the end, but you're, you're not very close to meeting your maker. Um, and, and that's just because there's a huge difference in energy expenditure. But then on the flip side, you're going to rest way longer after that set of 10 at 600 pounds versus maybe getting back under the bar a minute, two minutes later after the 200 for a set of 10. So basically, the more energy intensive the sets you're doing are, just kind of naturally, the longer you're going to rest uh, on the backside of it. Um, so I, I think that it's uh, I, I think that it's something that does self-regulate pretty well, where you, we can probably assume that most people over the course of an entire session are probably burning energy at a somewhat comparable rate, probably dependent to some degree on just their overall level of aerobic fitness with people who are more fit, just resting shorter amounts of time on average than people who are less aerobically fit. But there, there is kind of that inbuilt regulatory mechanism in place. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do think that that seems like a pretty decent uh, heuristic to roll with. Um, it, it is worth noting that it, that it does probably break down for certain types of workouts. So, you know, if you're doing a workout that's just like 10 singles and you're resting 10 minutes between each single to make sure you're fully recovered, eh, you're probably not burning six calories per minute. Uh, or if you're doing like a high intensity interval training circuit specifically for the purpose of of trying to make your resistance training as metabolically challenging as possible, it's probably going to be above kind of that top end of this estimated range of about four to eight kilocalories per minute. So, you know, there there are types of workouts for which this heuristic probably doesn't apply, but for most just kind of like normal uh, resistance training workouts, it's probably going to get you in the right general ballpark. Um, so uh, it... And one other thing to note is the six kilocalories per minute. That's an estimation of total energy expenditure, not uh, not additive energy expenditure. So some proportion of that is just going to be the energy you're burning just to keep yourself alive, like your basal metabolism. Um, so we can also estimate the the additive uh, part of that energy expenditure. Um, there's there's a generalized equation that I provided. Uh, in the article that you can use to do that by hand. But I also made a, a handy little calculator in Google Sheets that the article links to that you can check out uh, if this is something you would you would like to uh, use for yourself to to estimate energy expenditure in your own training. So and, and one of the things that I think is really nice is that you can look at, you know, estimated resting energy expenditure, mm -hmm. and then you could use this kind of heuristic and so even for the, some of those types of exercises you mentioned that might be higher than, than this number, might be lower, you can still use those two numbers to get like a ballpark kind of range. Like, yeah, yeah. okay, like here's resting, here's like a standard number for resistance training. I was doing a bunch of singles with a ton of rest, so I'm kind of somewhere in that middle range. And you can kind of feel out, you know, where you want to put that estimate. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, that, that was uh, my first article in the best of issue. Uh, moving on, I had a I, I reviewed a study called uh, Understanding Bench Press Biomechanics, Training Expertise and Sex Effect to Lifting Technique and Net Joint Moments by Mousehund and Crosshog. Um, so this study, 
was in my my title for this article was bench press may target different muscles in male and female lifters and so essentially what this study did is they they were interested in seeing whether sex and training experience would affect um both both joint moments and muscle activation in the bench press and so what they did is they recruited uh, one cohort of recreationally trained lifters and one cohort of competitive power lifters with male and female subjects in both cohorts. Uh, and, and they basically just had them do a single set of bench press with a 6 to 8 RM load. And they attached uh, reflective markers to their joints and to the bar so they could estimate uh, joint moments about the shoulder and about the elbow. And they also put uh, EMG electrodes on the front delt, the triceps, and the pecs to get a rough idea of, of muscle EMG, which uh, is a, a proxy for excitation of those muscles being assessed. And, and they were basically just interested in whether male and female lifters had different overall patterns of joint moments and muscle EMG and whether competitive uh, power lifters versus just recreationally trained subjects had uh, uh, different patterns of joint moments and EMG. And for, for this article, I mostly focused on the, uh, on the sex differences. Um, so so uh, competitive category seemed like it may have an effect, um, but that seemed like it was potentially just secondary to bar path. So both the, uh, the, the male and female power lifters seem to adopt a different technique than the recreationally trained subjects, which would be pretty predictable. <laughs> so the the powerlifters, they had more uh, horizontal barbell displacement. Basically, they touch lower on their chest uh, versus like a more linear bar path for the, the recreationally trained subjects. And so there were some differences downstream of that. But I, I think that's more just reflective of technique differences than than differences in training experience. Uh, but as far as the sex comparisons go, uh, it seemed that the female benchers, uh, regardless of, of competitive category, um, had a more triceps dominant bench and the male benchers had a more pec dominant bench. And that showed up both in the EMG data and in the, the joint moment data. So the, the ratio of elbow to shoulder net joint moments was kind of more tilted toward elbow joint moments in the female lifters, more tilted toward shoulder joint moments in the male lifters. And then as far as the EMG data goes, uh, there, there was higher pec EMG in the male benchers, higher triceps EMG in the female benchers. So that, that tells a, uh, a cohesive story. So the EMG data and the joint kinetic data match up pretty well, uh, suggesting that for benching with heavy but still submaximal loads, maybe female benchers are relying on their triceps a bit more and male benchers are relying on their pecs a bit more on average, uh, which, which was an interesting finding. And it also paired nicely with a prior study by uh, Kroll and Golis that we've reviewed, uh, I think, like three years ago in mass. So in that study, what they did is they were also looking at EMG in the bench press, and they were looking at how it changed with increasing loads from, if memory serves, uh, 55% of 1RM up to 1RM loads. And what they found in that study is that the increase in PEC EMG from very submaximal loads, 55% of 1RM up to 1RM loads, 
the increases in pec EMG were larger in female lifters than male lifters, and the increase in triceps EMG was larger in male lifters than female lifters. And so at first, those, these two studies might seem contradictory. So the, the study in the best of issue found that, oh, maybe the bench press is a little bit more triceps dominant for women, a little bit more pec dominant for men. The prior study by Kroll and Golis found that, ooh, maybe the, the pec EMG increases more towards maximal loads for females, but triceps EMG is increasing more as you approach maximal load in males. So how do those two things uh, uh, mesh? Like, they seem contradictory. But I actually think they match up pretty nicely. I, I think that they suggest that when you're benching with, with submaximal loads, so just kind of like normal standard training loads, maybe the bench press is a slightly more triceps dominant lift for females on average and slightly more pec dominant for males on average. But that's not necessarily reflective of uh, like just inherent sex differences in the ability to access and use those muscles. Basically, uh, what, what I put forth as a potential explanation to explain how these studies mesh is that essentially the, the nervous system for, for female lifters may just kind of like lean on the triceps a little bit more for kind of like normal work, but then there's still a strength reserve in the pecs. So when, when lifts approach maximal intensity, that's kind of the last safety valve to, to ramp up and, and, uh, you know, carry the load as the loads get very, very heavy and the opposite being true for the triceps. So, uh, for, for male lifters. So, you know, maybe with submaximal training loads, the, the nervous system of male lifters wants to lean more on the pecs, but then as the loads get really heavy and the pecs are basically tapped out, you still have that strength reserve and the triceps to kind of, uh, uh, carry the additional load as the loads approach maximal. Uh, so, so I, I thought this was interesting. I did find it, uh, I found it neat that both of these studies suggested that there might be some some neuromuscular differences between the sexes in terms of what muscles are relied on more heavily, uh, even in even in an exercise that's as relatively simple as the bench press. And one other thing to note, um, so you may have been listening to this and heard like, oh, well, this study found that, uh, you know, higher elbow joint moments relative to shoulder joint moments in the female lifters, maybe that was just due to differences in grip width that the lifters chose. I should have mentioned this on the front end. Uh, grip width was standardized in this study, so it was 100% or 160% of biochromial breadth for all of the subjects. So you you can't just chalk these these differences up to uh, self-selected grip width differences. It, it does seem to be, uh, I guess, like true differences in the the movement strategies that the lifters select, and maybe neuromuscular activation patterns that the nervous system selects. Cool. Any, Sounds good. Any feedback on that one? Uh, bench hard. You know, that's kind of <laughs> how I do it. Cool. Um, all right, moving on. My next uh, article, my, my title for it was Attentional Focus May Influence Strength Development, and it was a review of the study. Uh, Acute and Long-Term Effects of Attentional Focus Strategies on Muscular Strength. Uh, colon, a meta-analysis by Gurdjick and colleagues. And so, uh, yeah, this was a meta-analysis on attentional focus. And so 
I, I know we've talked about attentional focus on the podcast before, but I'm sure it's been a while because I can't remember when the last time was. But basically, um, an internal attentional focus is a focus on some component of a movement. And so um, most often in the term, in the context of lifting, when you think about an internal attentional focus, it's generally like fo- focusing on feeling a particular muscle working or contracting. So, you know, if you're doing bicep curls, instead of just trying to to maximize performance on bicep curls, you're really focusing on squeezing the biceps, feeling it get a good contraction. That's an internal attentional focus versus an external attentional focus. That's a focus on the outcome of a movement. So, you know, in the case of bicep curls, you're not necessarily trying to feel your biceps get the best contraction possible. You're you're, you have a weight in your hands and you're trying to uppercut someone as explosively as possible with it. Um, and sometimes like the way I think about it when I'm doing a machine based movement, right. is like, maybe you're doing something like rows or pull downs. And mm-hmm. a lot of people have difficulty even implementing internal focus w- when they're doing lat movements. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people really struggle to make that mind muscle connection. Sometimes I just kind of focus on the stack yeah. and just watch the stack go up and down. And I'm just thinking, drive the elbows back and just get that stack up. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think probably the, the external cue that people in powerlifting would be the most familiar with is in bench press, just throw the bar through the ceiling. That's a, that's a classic external cue. Um, so yeah, those, those are kind of the broad differences in internal versus external attentional focus strategies. And what this meta-analysis wanted to do is look at the evidence related to the impact of internal versus external attentional focus on acute strength performance, but then also uh, changes, uh, longitudinal changes in strength and performance over time. Um, And so in terms of the acute meta-analysis, they came up with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, eight studies. I I think it was eight uh, different groups and seven studies Um, looking at the impact of internal versus external attentional focus on strength performance. And they found that an external attentional focus did uh, improve strength performance relative to an internal focus, which isn't surprising. That is what one would predict. Uh, But it is actually good to see. And the reason I say that is um, most of the research on attentional focus isn't hyper-specific to strength outcomes. So there's a really, really broad body of research on internal versus external attentional focus on performance and acute neuromuscular outcomes. But most of it is more looking at uh, things like jump height, which is somewhat related to maximal strength performance, but then also more just kind of like fine motor skills. So or, or I guess this would be more like gross motor skills, but like beanbag tossing. So, you know, do you focus on the, the, the like pendulum arc of your arm as you toss the beanbag, which would be an internal focus, or do you just kind of like stare at the target where you want to toss the beanbag and, and to focus on the outcome of the movement like that? Um, and so there's, there's a lot of, uh, just kind of like neuromuscular research looking at at sort of like accuracy-based goals, finding that external attentional focus uh, produces better outcomes. But like I said, a lot of that isn't, isn't directly related to strength performance. 
But there's now enough research looking at the acute impact of internal versus external attentional focus on maximal strength performance that we can meta-analyze these studies and find that, yeah, an external attentional focus acutely enhances strength performance. Not, you know, it's not going to like double your bench press, but the pooled effect size was like 0.3, 0.4, something like that. So that's a, that's a small but notable effect. Um Then in terms of uh, longitudinal outcomes, there were only three studies uh, that could be included in this meta-analysis. So, you know, regardless of what they found, and regardless of the fact that it's a meta-analysis, statistical power in meta-analysis is still a thing. You can have a meta-analysis that is underpowered. And no matter what this meta found, it would have probably been underpowered. So, you know, we don't want to put all of our eggs in this basket, but they they did two separate metas here. They they looked at the effect uh, of internal versus external attentional focus on all strength measures included in in the studies uh, that made this meta-analysis. And they also looked at the impact of internal versus external attentional focus just on lower body strength measures. And they found that when looking at all strength measures, there was kind of an aggregate nominal positive effect uh, for external attentional focus on strength gains over time that wasn't quite statistically significant. Uh, But for um, just lower body measures of strength development, they found that an external attentional focus did have a statistically significant effect on strength development over time. Uh, And (laughs) the difference between the analysis of all strength outcomes versus just lower body strength outcomes I think it was just, uh, so there was a 2018 Schoenfeld study, which if you've ever listened to people talk about the the impact of internal versus external attentional focus on hypertrophy, this is the study they'll they'll always bring up. Um, And in that study, they found that an internal attentional focus was beneficial for biceps growth. Didn't really seem to do all that much for quad growth, but people really just focus on the biceps findings and they're like, Oh yeah, like really focusing on squeezing, getting that good biceps contraction, that's going to help you grow more. Internal attentional focus, uh, very evidence-based, scientifically validated for hypertrophy. The outcomes of that study that aren't talked about as much are the strength outcomes. And in that study, uh, an internal attentional focus was also beneficial for increases in bicep strength, whereas Every other uh, study that has looked at this has found that an external attentional focus uh, is superior for strength development. So basically what this meta found is that when you pool all of the measures from these three studies together, there's not a statistically significant effect of uh, attentional focus on strength development. But if you just kind of throw out the biceps findings in in the Schoenfeld study, uh, an external attentional focus does have a statistically significant effect on strength development. Uh, so basically, it's it's a finding that is that seems to be completely contingent on whether or not you include one measure from one study. So as I mentioned before, underpowered meta-analysis. Uh, but it does at least suggest that the bulk of the evidence kind of leans in favor of an external attentional focus, probably enhancing strength development over time. And, and that's an important thing because... You know, one of the things we talk about on the podcast a lot is that there are a lot of acute studies that find that, you know, some supplement or some training practice 
uh, acutely enhances performance and training or testing a little bit. But then the big question is like, well, if you if you do this all the time and, and you always take this supplement before training or you always use this warm-up practice that enhances performance a little bit, does that actually improve strength gains and performance more over time than not doing that thing? So, you know, we would like to assume that anything that acutely enhances performance will also chronically lead to larger performance enhancements over time. Um but in a lot of cases, there's not great longitudinal evidence to support the ongoing usage of things that do have a positive acute impact. Uh, and in this case, you know, I, I won't say that there's, you know, 100% slam dunk evidence that an external attentional focus uh, both improves acute performance and those improvements in acute performance necessarily lead to larger enhancements in performance long term. Um but the evidence does at least lean in that direction. Uh, so there's there's strong evidence that an external attentional focus will acutely enhance performance. And I would say weak to moderate evidence that that will also lead to larger performance enhancements over time. Now, are you aware of much research other than that one Schoenfeld paper about hypertrophy as an outcome uh, with no. internal external focus? Um, yeah, I mean... I've, I've had a lot of clients in the past who um, they'll mention, you know, man, I'm really struggling feeling the mind-muscle connection with this particular exercise. Mm-hmm. And usually my response to that is like, that's that's fine. Like, let's just adopt an external focus when we're doing that exercise. Mm-hmm. And maybe at some point we'll kind of develop that mind-muscle connection. If, you know, for I think there are a lot of people who, perceive that to be very important Mm -hmm. um i'm not necessarily fully convinced that the mind muscle connection is necessarily that important uh, in terms of training adaptations but at the very least if you're working with a client who is clearly uh frustrated with their lack of ability to find the mind muscle connection if nothing else i mean results of the meta aside using this idea of an external focus can be a really nice way to alleviate that concern and say, well, if the, if the internal focus is not working for us, we have an alternative. Yeah. Uh, And, and if anything, I lean toward kind of favoring the external focus anyway, Mm -hmm. but, but at the very least, it's a great way for clients to kind of, uh, alleviate that concern and buy back into being excited about that movement. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that perspective. And I just want to make one thing clear. Um, I think there is perhaps a, a slight chance that some people will perceive what I said in that segment to potentially be taking shots at at Brad and that study. Like, you know, ooh, was he implying that the biceps findings in this study can conflict with other research? Is he saying that that study was bad? No, uh, I was definitely not trying to imply that. Uh, Brad's a good researcher, and as far as I can tell, that study was was done well. Um, I I, ju- I just wanted to note uh, specifically on on the hypertrophy side of things that I do think I do think some people are maybe being a little bit hasty um, in, in terms of trying to uh, trying to make what what they perceive to be a very strong case that an internal attentional focus is definitely better for hypertrophy than an external attentional focus. 
so there is there is acute evidence. So th- this this study, uh, the meta that I reviewed, wasn't interested in this particular question, but there there is other research looking at the impact of internal versus external attentional focus on other acute measures. So one of those being uh, EMG measures. And so an internal attentional focus not always but often results in higher EMG of the muscle being assessed than an external attentional focus does. And so you might look at that and say, ooh, well, this this might be indicative of greater muscle activation. Therefore, maybe we should predict that an internal attentional focus will lead to more muscle growth. And then there is that one longitudinal Schoenfeld paper where an internal attentional focus did result in more biceps growth than an external focus. And so people kind of look at that and they're like, ooh, we have some acute evidence and and a little bit of longitudinal evidence that seems to back it up. Uh, Therefore, we can say very confidently that an internal attentional focus is definitely going to result in more growth than an external attentional focus. And, And I think that people... Like, I don't even know that that's wrong, but I, I think that people may have the cart ahead of the horse a little bit where the the acute EMG stuff isn't, like, super solid. So some studies do find that in that an internal focus results in, in higher muscle EMG. Uh, a lot of studies don't, though. Um, and the ones that do find a difference tend to find a relatively small difference. And, you know, then that opens a whole can of worms. It's like, oh, well, we're seeing a 7% difference in... Uh, uh, PEC EMG expressed as a percentage of EMG observed in a maximum voluntary isometric contraction. A, a 7% MVIC difference in PEC EMG, what does what does that equate to in terms of uh, millimeters of PEC thickness accrued over 16 weeks? I don't have an answer, and that's because no one has an answer, because uh, EMG hasn't been validated as a longitudinal proxy for hypertrophy. Uh, and even if it had been, there, you know, we're a long way away from having a dose response relationship to say like, Ooh, this, this magnitude of EMG difference is likely to result in this magnitude of hypertrophy difference. And then as far as the longitudinal stuff goes, like you brought up, as far as I'm aware, it is just that one study. They assessed two muscles and they found that an internal attentional focus maybe resulted in more growth in one muscle, not the other muscle. So it's, you know, it's even in the longitudinal evidence that exists it's kind of a coin flip um so yeah i mean it it very well could be a decade down the road we do have really strong evidence that an internal attentional focus enhances hypertrophy external attentional focus enhances strength and we have a really really strong evidentiary basis for those claims as it is now i think we have a weak to moderate evidentiary basis for saying an external attentional focus We'll, we'll probably enhance strength gains o- over time. I think we have a very weak evidentiary basis for saying that an internal attentional focus enhances hypertrophy over time. I do think that the weight of the evidence tilts in that direction, but I think that it's a, a somewhat tenuous tilt as it is now and that uh, uh, maybe people are putting too many eggs in those baskets. Uh, yeah. And for now, you know, uh, you're probably going to grow with either attentional focus so if someone does just prefer to do hypertrophy training with a focus on performance in the gym and lifting with an external attentional focus, that definitely should still result in muscle growth. And, you know, even if it is like slightly suboptimal uh, compared to an internal attentional focus, 
if that's just how someone prefers training, like it is still productive training. And I, I wouldn't want to dissuade someone from doing that. Yeah. And, and it is a little bit easier to objectively track progress over time when, when there's a little bit more of the focus on the performance related outcome, yeah, you know, for rather sure. than just like, Hmm, are, are my exercises feeling as good as they were six weeks ago in this training block? You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. But yeah, just to reinforce your point, like pointing out that a small study disagrees with other studies in the area. If you look at any meta-analysis, not any, but in a perfect world, if you looked at any meta-analysis, you would see a funnel plot, you know, where uh, as you look at some of these small studies, we do expect, um, like baked into what we're doing with a meta-analysis, we expect that some of the smaller studies are going to... uh, you know, fairly substantially overestimate the effect size and others are going to fairly substantially underestimate the effect size. Mm -hmm. So to see one of these kind of small randomized controlled trials in this area disagreeing with others uh, on a similar topic, that is not a unique thing. And it certainly doesn't imply that it was a bad or poorly done study. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Now, Greg, you've got two left. Correct. I think I've only got one left. Because I was going to say, you've done the interference effect. Exactly. You yeah. covered that study on the podcast. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah the, the the next uh, study that I looked at in the best of issue uh, is compatibility of concurrent aerobic and strength training for skeletal muscle size and function, an updated systematic review and meta-analysis by Schumann and colleagues. And like Eric said, I'm positive that we've talked about this on the podcast before. So uh, I figure we can probably just link that in the show notes and uh, move on to my last one, which is a study looking at uh, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. So the title of this one was An Update on Sarcoplasmic Hypertrophy. That was my title for the article. The study I was looking at was myofibril and mitochondrial area changes in type 1 and type 2 fibers following 10 weeks of resistance training in previously untrained men by Rupel and colleagues. And so in this study, they recruited a sample of 15 untrained men, and they completed 10 weeks of resistance training following a moderate rep full body resistance training program. So they were mostly doing sets of 6 to 10 reps pretty close to failure. And so this study looked at a ton of outcomes. Uh, Like it it came out of a lab that does a lot of... um, what is the word I'm looking at? Like it looks at a lot of like molecular outcomes. Um, but for the purposes of this study, I was mostly interested in three outcomes, which was uh, changes in fiber cross-sectional area, changes in myofibrillar density. So the proportion of each muscle fiber that was composed of myofibrils, which is where contractile proteins are housed. Uh, and also changes in mitochondrial density. So what percentage of each fiber is taken up by mitochondria, which, as we all know, are the powerhouse of the cell. And so uh, I, so I wanted to talk about this uh, through the lens of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. And before going further, I think it's worth just kind of giving my operational definition of what sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is. So sarcoplasm is <laughs> basically every part of, of muscle fiber that is not the myofibril, is not the, the contractile, like the, the parts of the fiber where the, the um, contractile proteins are housed. So you have your uh, just your, your sarcoplasm kind of proper, the 
uh, the, the aqueous solution that everything kind of floats in. You have your other organelles. Uh, you have your, your mitochondria, um, you know, and, and pretty much everything that isn't just contractile protein. And so when muscle fibers grow, uh, you tend to, and hopefully do, accrue more contractile protein, but you also accrue more of the other stuff as well. So you, so you also have an increase in sarcoplasm. And so my operational definition of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is a disproportionate uh, increase in the sarcoplasm portion of the fiber relative to the contractile portion of the fiber. So if a muscle fiber was previously 70% myofibrils and 30% sarcoplasm, and it increases in size by 20%, uh, but at the end it's still 70% myofibrils, 30% sarcoplasm, the total amount of sarcoplasm in the fiber increased because the fiber got bigger, but proportionally the increases in uh, sarcoplasm and myofibrils were the same. So that would be no sarcoplasmic hypertrophy occurring. But if the total amount of myofibril stayed the same and the total increase in muscle fiber size was solely accounted for by just expansion of the sarcoplasm such that at the end now it's 60% myofibrils and 40% sarcoplasm, that would be an example of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy occurring. So fiber growth occurs, but the, there's a disproportionate increase in the sarcoplasm portion of the fiber and a net decrease in the relative proportion of myofibril uh, area taken up in the fiber. And then on the flip side, myofibrillar packing can occur. So uh, if a fiber grows and at the end, now it's 80% myofibrils and only 20% sarcoplasm, that's the opposite of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. That's myofibrillar packing. So now you, you had a disproportionate increase in contractile proteins relative to everything else as the fiber grew. So those are those are my my operational definitions of those terms. And so uh yeah, going back to the results of this study, uh they trained for a while, muscles grew as you would hope they would. Uh and on average, there weren't net changes in myofibrillar density within the entire uh sample. So there were just kind of nominal decreases in myofibrillar density of like 3 to 5% um, on average, but that wasn't statistically significant. And so it seems like within this, this group of subjects, after 10 weeks of resistance training, uh, you didn't see significant sarcoplasmic hypertrophy or myofibrillar packing. The ratio of myofibrils to sarcoplasm within the sample on average was, was maintained over those 10 weeks as hypertrophy occurred. But this study uh, did what I always like to see, which is plotting individual data points to get an idea of the total range of outcomes observed within the sample. So even though there was not an average change in myofibrillar density uh, within the entire cohort, when you look at the individual data points, you see everything from a 20% decrease in myofibrillar area within the fibers, which would be suggestive of considerable sarcoplasmic hypertrophy occurring, to about a 20% uh, increase in myofibrillar area of the fibers, which would suggest very considerable myofibrillar packing occurring, so a decrease in, in uh, the total portion of sarcoplasm. So that's, that's a very wide range of individual responses. 
Uh, and I think that's noteworthy because, and you know, at this point I could, I might just be a boomer and I'm responding to an argument that not all that many people are making anymore. But I, I remember it wasn't that long ago where, uh, it was considered that the entire idea of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy was necessarily bro science because, um, you know, th there was the assumption that the ratio of myofibrils to sarcoplasm within muscle fibers had to be constrained within pretty tight limits and that if it wasn't, there would be like catastrophic, uh, energetic consequences to that. And, and, so, so basically, just on principle, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy couldn't occur because the ratio of myofibrils to sarcoplasm couldn't change that much. And I do think that this study provides pretty strong evidence against that perspective. Like, if if we're seeing shifts in myofibrillar density of 20% one way or the other, that necessarily implies that there's not a, a super tight range uh, that the ratio of myofibrils to sarcoplasm has to fall within. So I, I think that at minimum, this opens the door for sarcoplasmic hypertrophy being a possibility if that uh, argument I previously expressed was something you were you were previously holding on to. And I'll note that there is there is human evidence for sarcoplasmic hypertrophy in the first place. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't find that argument particularly compelling. But, um, yeah, I, I, I did think that the total range demonstrated in this article was very interesting. And I'll also note that you know, some of it might just be some degree of measurement error. So, you know, something that looks like a 20% increase might be an actual 15% increase. But, you know, with any measurement technique, there's some amount of, of potential for error involved. But I, I don't think that you can explain plus or minus 20% just solely as measurement error. Um, so that was something I found interesting. The other thing I found very interesting in this study is there was a uh, there was no relationship, so there were two more things I found interesting. One of them was that there was no relationship between the change in myofibrillar area and the total amount of hypertrophy that occurred. So essentially, what this study found is that, uh, you know, if, if you experience more uh, total hypertrophy, that's not reflective of greater sarcoplasmic hypertrophy occurring or myofibrillar packing occurring. So, you know, if, if someone grows a lot, you can't you can't necessarily assume like, oh, well, they just experienced a ton of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. It's not like real growth or whatever. Like the 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 amount of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy that occurred on an individual basis was not predictive of the total amount of hypertrophy that occurred, which I thought was neat. And then the thing that I found the neatest in this study, um, because it it plays into a little pet theory that I that I haven't fully fleshed out and I don't think is fully uh, validated yet, but it's it's something that I believe it's within my scientific head canon. Um, so they found that there was a negative relationship between uh, changes in fiber cross-sectional area and changes in mitochondrial density. So what that means is that if you didn't experience an increase in mitochondrial density, that was predictive of you. Uh, experiencing more hypertrophy versus if you did uh, have a, a large uh, enhancement in mitochondrial density, that was predictive of not much hypertrophy occurring. And so uh, the thing I liked about this and, and what I mentioned about my headcanon 
is I think that one of the primary limiters of hypertrophy is primarily energetic. So uh, basically, if if a fiber is having a really easy time um, uh, maintaining energy homeostasis, it will be more willing to grow. So basically, a fiber growing is an energetic stress because now there's more total stuff inside the fiber. And so when you exercise, it's burning more total energy that it then has to you know, resynthesize ATP for so that the fiber itself isn't in an energetically threatened state. Um, and so I, I, I think that that is one of the constraints on hypertrophy. And so what I'm reading into this association, which might not be justified at all, like I said, this is just my interpretation, uh, is that, you know, maybe this suggests that the people who didn't have an enhancement in mitochondrial density they already had muscle fibers that were metabolically equipped to be able to grow. Like it was permissive of growth because uh, they they were just in a, a more chill, energetic state overall versus people who, you know, maybe they do some resistance training and their their fibers aren't like, ooh, shit, I need to get bigger and grow. They're like, oh, shit, I did some bicep curls and now <laughs> like <laughs> the muscle fibers in my biceps we're barely able to to turn over ATP fast enough to avoid an energetic cataclysm. We don't need to worry about growing. We need to worry about making more mitochondria to to generate enough energy for further resistance training. Um, like so that that's what I kind of read into this association. Uh, but you know that could be totally spurious, and it could just be that I'm kind of too too fixated on my idea. Of of energetic homeostasis being a a regulator of hypertrophy, uh, but I I found that association interesting. But yeah, biggest takeaway from this study, when when a group of people does the same resistance training program, uh, some of them might experience a ton of myofibrillar uh, packing. Some of them might experience quite a bit of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, uh, and, and you know that's just in people training with the same rep ranges. Like there, there's this idea that uh, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy will only occur and necessarily occurs if you do a lot of low load training and that uh, heavier training, which is how I, how I would characterize the training in this study. So sets of six to 10 reps, that's, that's kind of on the low to moderate uh, end. So people think that that's necessarily going to result in uh, either no change in in myofibrillar density or maybe even an increase in myofibrillar density. But, you know, that's not the type of training that would result in sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. That's only low-load training that does that. Um, yeah, th- th- this study found that, <laughs> at least within this sample, uh, people doing the same training program, some of them experienced a lot of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, some of them experienced a lot of myofibrillar packing, and those two things weren't predictive of the overall hypertrophy people experienced. So ultimately, I think that this is a very interesting area of research, but there are also just an enormous amount of open questions. Like, I don't think we fully characterized the total extent to which sarcoplasmic hypertrophy can occur. Um, we definitely haven't established that a particular type of training uh increases your odds for sarcoplasmic hypertrophy versus myofibrillar packing to occur. Like people think that that's very established. It is not. Um, we don't know what's, what's predictive of, uh, of, 
you know, those various outcomes occurring. It, it's it's just something where there's a wide open world in front of us where it does seem to be a phenomenon that can happen, but we don't exactly know what causes it or predicts it. Uh, so I'm, you know, I, I'm hoping that we'll see a lot more uh, interesting research on sarcoplasmic hypertrophy in the future. I hope so. Uh, so we in the ma- the best of mass issue we've got all the stuff we've discussed up to this point as we alluded to we also have another article from you about the interference effect which we've discussed on the podcast previously but i do in, in our last uh, couple moments here want to give a rundown of other things in this best of mass issue and it's it's over 130 pages plus two videos so there's a lot of information in here uh, i have some additional articles One is called Replacing Animal Proteins with Plant Proteins. Are there any downsides? And I talk a little bit about some of the potential micronutrient shortcomings that you might find if you switch over from an omnivorous diet to a fully plant-based diet and what to do about that. Uh, On that topic, I should note that uh, Dan Feldman reached out to me and mentioned that I am not going to the doctor for vitamin testing just because I'm an old man who's stubborn. Uh, He brought to my attention, apparently in the United States, a lot of healthcare plans do cover uh, like an annual, like general health visit. And I think that's uh, a requirement for many programs in the United States. Like the way he framed it, it sounds like you probably do have that in your your policy, especially if you got it over the uh, uh, the marketplace um, way to get insurance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and most company-sponsored programs include that as well. I don't know how they would do with follow-up testing if you, for example, did that annual screening and they said, yeah, you're short on this, multi- uh, this uh, micronutrient. I'm not sure how the follow-up visits would, would be covered under various programs. I don't know. Uh, but props to Dan, uh, to Dan Feldman for bringing that to my attention. Although his credibility is pretty tarnished because he did ask a question about THC on the podcast. So mm, that, that not, is true. Not a good, not a good guy, not a reputable guy, but nonetheless, Dan, uh, Dan Feldman, thank you for bringing that to my attention. And of course I'm kidding. Dan is awesome. Uh, what, what, what did we decide his Instagram handle was? I think it's at powerlifting dietitian. Yeah. So he, he's a very experienced powerlifter, excellent dietitian. Be sure to check him out. Uh, anyway, moving on the, uh, the next article I had was collagen protein. Isn't great for promoting muscle hypertrophy. I talk about a randomized controlled trial directly comparing a leucine matched, uh, dose of whey protein versus collagen protein. So obviously collagen protein doesn't have leucine or doesn't have a meaningful amount of it. So what, what they did in this study was they matched for leucine to try to, uh, to try to give the collagen a chance to do something. But collagen is a, a very unfavorable protein based on its amino acid breakdown. It's not going to do a great job supporting uh, muscle hypertrophy. In the article, I talk about uh, what collagen protein might maybe be good for. Uh, I also present my perspective that I think glycine supplementation makes more sense than collagen supplementation in most instances where people are supplementing with collagen. Uh, but then I also talk about what to do if you do have a significant amount of collagen in your daily routine, in your daily diet. How do you account for that in the context of your 
daily protein target. So all about collagen, what it does, what it doesn't do, and how to incorporate it into a diet without displacing proteins that actually will help you build skeletal muscle. I've got an article called Adding Another Layer to the Energy Compensation Discussion. Uh, I think I've alluded to this particular article on the podcast, but basically it was a fascinating article that found when you are in neutral or positive energy balance, the additive model uh, of energy expenditure does a great job. And the additive model, what we're talking about here is compensating for calories burned during exercise. So the additive model basically assumes that there's no compensation. If you add 100 calories of cardio to your daily routine, the additive model assumes your total daily energy expenditure will go up by 100 calories, no compensation. The, uh, the um, alternative model would suggest that, you know, if you added uh, 100 calories of cardio to your daily routine, you would compensate for maybe 20, 30, 40% of those calories. So, um, you know, the, the additive model, like I said, would assume ev all 100 of those calories are going to get added to your total daily energy expenditure. Um, but in contrast, the alternative model would suggest that uh, basically you added 100 calories of cardio to your daily routine, but total daily energy expenditure might only go up by 60, 70, 80 calories, something like that. So uh, what this study did was it compared these two different models of energy expenditure. It found the additive model actually did fine if you're in neutral or positive energy balance, whereas uh, the alternative model that does incorporate compensation does a much better job fitting the data when you are looking at negative energy balance. Uh, so it was really fascinating. It kind of gets into that conversation of the constrained energy expenditure model, um, how it compares to the additive model, and which one makes sense in which particular circumstance. So the idea of compensating for exercise calories, uh, there appears to be some significant variation from person to person, but there also appears to be variation based on whether or not you're in negative energy balance, which has really important ramifications for dieting and also important ramifications for how we fuel uh, athletes with really high activity levels in two very different circumstances, uh, where, where we have to decide how much additional energy intake is needed to, uh, to account for some of this, uh, physical activity that's going on. Uh, the next one I have is it's called, uh, is everything that's measured worth managing? And in this article, I basically talk about what wearable technologies are good for, and more importantly, what they're not good for. Uh, so it was a new study comparing some of the newer uh, wearable technologies on the market. And the short version is they do a pretty good job generally of tracking heart rate and step count, but for energy expenditure during a variety of different activities, they do a very poor job, uh, too poor a job to reliably lean on when you're making changes to your caloric tar target or your caloric intake from day to day. Uh, so I do a, a, a pretty deep look at uh, how those different technologies stack up and, and where they have shortcomings. And then finally, I had an article called Cold Exposure for Fat Loss. Physiology can be cool without being useful. And that is a pun. That's what we call a pun in the writing business. Uh, but people have been popularizing cold exposure lately. I think it's something that just kind of goes in waves. It gets really uh, hyped up for a minute and then it goes away for a while. It's way on the upswing right now. A lot of people are hyping it up. 
And one of the things I find really interesting about these very uh, mechanistically driven, fairly speculative concepts is that they they often break down when you just push the people who are uh, hyping them up and just say, yeah, 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 that's very cool. Physiology is fun, but like use numbers. Yeah. And when you start actually using numbers and be like, no, but find numbers from human studies and, and then use those to make your argument. A lot of times they fall apart. And so all I really do in this article, of course, I review a study about uh, some some cold water swimmers uh, and how they respond to cold exposure in terms of energy expenditure, how their body composition differs to uh, matched controls. But more importantly, I just say like, okay, let's say this is an idea. Let's actually use the evidence which exists and put numbers to it and figure out how helpful is a cold exposure program for fat loss. And simply based on the arithmetic, when we look at how much energy expenditure goes up in response to acute cold exposure uh, and how long you could feasibly actually expose yourself to that level of cold, as far as I can tell, from my perspective, it looks like a dead end. Uh, the, the increase in energy expenditure is too short-lived and too small in magnitude and the intervention itself is too unbearably uncomfortable to say like, yes, this is your path to clinically relevant or practically relevant fat loss. You, you know, it, it reminds me a lot of uh, like fat burner supplements, which are for the most part just caffeine. It's right. like, oh, yeah, th this this boosts your metabolism. So you'll burn more energy and lose weight. And it's like, yeah, but but like but like how much, though? And it's like, oh, well, uh you know, over, over the time that it's in your system, eh, maybe like 30 calories. It's like, okay, so, so none, right. but, it, but it's like, okay, so, you know, I, I have a choice between having a trivial impact on my total energy expenditure from consuming a lot of caffeine, getting wired, very pleasant. I love it. Would highly recommend it versus like freezing my ass off for 30 minutes. And it's like, both, neither of them, neither of them is really going to do anything, but like, at least one of them's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so that that was my big takeaway is like whenever someone's given me some flashy, mechanistic, speculative idea like, oh, this is going to change the game in terms of fat loss. I'm like, use numbers. And and then if, if they're not willing to put numbers on it, it, it's probably more hype than it is actual substance. Yeah. So um, those were the remainder of the studies uh, or the articles that I have in the best of mass issue. I do want to briefly mention uh, Zordos and Helms obviously make fantastic uh, contributions every month to mass. They should be discussing these on the Iron Culture podcast on May 2nd. Um, but for example, uh, we've got an article by Mike, when and how are flexible templates actually useful? So talking about how to use flexible training templates uh, article by Helms, the link between overtraining and low energy availability, really fascinating article talking about how it can be actually in the literature, quite difficult to distinguish between, uh, you know, overreaching and overtraining versus low energy availability. There's a lot of overlapping, uh, overlapping symptoms there that can, and they often appear in unison or, or there are instances where you think it might be one or the other, and it's hard to tell which. Uh, so a really insightful article there. Article by Mike Zordos, the most comprehensive look at proximity to failure yet, talking about how close to failure you should train. 
Uh, and then we've got some videos. Uh, Dr. Zordos has a video about time-efficient programming strategies for resistance training. And then Dr. Helms has a, a video about periodizing singles in powerlifting training. That's something we've talked about previously uh, on the podcast is the idea of uh, incorporating some heavy singles and kind of like the, the laziest way to make a hypertrophy program into a powerlifting program is like, hey, throw some singles at the beginning, right? Yep. So uh, Dr. Helms talks all about how to uh, kind of strategically incorporate some of those singles into your powerlifting training. So that uh, sums up everything that's in the best of mass issue. And like I said, uh, it is entirely free to download and we will put the link in the show notes. Uh, so that does it for this episode. Now to play us out, we've got actually a couple things. Sometimes we're, we're really reaching for topics here, but uh, we've got some topical stuff here. So in the past, I've taken a pretty firm stance against reading um, and I've gotten some pushback for that. But I feel like I've been totally vindicated. Um, we have talked in the past about how the my one exception where I will allow reading is textbooks. I think textbooks are really valuable and I do read them regularly. So um, I actually just went on uh, like some of the secondhand book websites where you can order like a $200 textbook for like $7 because it's one edition old but has literally all the same information. That That is my hack. Like... If you're buying the current version of a textbook, no, go one edition older and get it for like literally pennies on the dollar. Yeah. But um, anyway, I, I did a big... Um, and definitely don't go to Libgen. That's Ill <laughs> illegal and no one on this podcast would ever use a website like that. I, I, I like to have a physical textbook. Like yeah. that that is the oldest thing about my personality is I want to turn the page. I want to feel the book. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, I bought like eight, nine, 10 textbooks, something like that. And I was like, okay, this is my one opportunity to get away from all the wacky stuff you see on the internet about nutrition and, and all that crap. Like I'm going and buying specifically academic textbooks. And the way I found them was like, I, I was going on like uh, research, you know, uh, websites where uh, researchers and university professors talk about like, Hey, I'm teaching psych 301. What textbook should I use for health behavior psychology? Right. So like yeah. these are legit textbooks. So I order them and the, the site that I ordered them from was like, Oh, you like science and you like nutrition. I've got some recommendations for you. And so this automated email comes into my box, uh, three recommendations <laughs> that I got. Since I like the really hard-hitting science and I like nutrition. And, and this was three out of like seven, right? Yeah. It, it was like nearly half of the recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. Three that came up. Gary Taubes, who uh, is really big on an approach to nutrition that many are saying is fully debunked at this point. And they're saying it more and more. And they are saying well, it more we, and more. We, we talked about the most recent... Uh, it was it wasn't even a review paper like a viewpoint paper that yeah. he was on uh comparing the energy balance model versus the carbohydrate insulin model and we talked about that paper and and showed in detail how the previous version of the carbohydrate insulin model that he put forth has been so thoroughly debunked that the current iteration of the carbohydrate insulin model that they're on is now fully consistent with the energy balance model. Right. So 
wh- whatever book they're recommending is so- some prior version of uh, of that hypothesis that has now been so thoroughly debunked that he himself is now on papers proposing a new version of the model that he I don't think he would ever admit this out loud, but it, at least tacitly admits that the old version uh, that his books are based on is is just not tenable anymore. Correct. Uh, speaking of debunked, another recommendation was Brian Wansink. <laughs> um, and I'm not going to make any uh, libelous or slanderous <laughs> claims on the show, but just Google Brian Wansink, see what comes up. Um, basically, uh, he used to be a professor. If he had his way, he would still be a professor, but... He no longer is because some of his research and emails came out and they were not favorable. Uh, The research was a bit unreliable and led to many, many retractions and a loss of employment. Uh, That's a diplomatic way to approach that, right? Sure. (laughs) It led to a crisis in psychology, basically. Correct. It was part of a part of a kind of movement to say, hey, we need to make sure our data are reliable. Yeah. Uh, and then there was finally uh, David Avocado Wolf. Hell yeah. Who, um, I don't know, you would know his greatest hits better than I would. Dude, I love David Avocado Wolf. So um, he's he's not even low-key fell off. Like, he high-key fell off. Like, his his Facebook page, go back to like 2015, 2016, was a gold mine. It was incredible. And I don't mean a gold mine of good information i mean a gold mine of funny information like he would be posting stuff four times a day that was just the most insane shit he'd be like you know what like your heart chakra has the same octave of vibration as mandarin oranges and so if you eat mandarin oranges it's good for your soul just like stuff that for the most part was generally harmless but also just just insane just concentrated distilled chaotic just psychotic type shit on par with some of our we've had some in in the facebook group some posts about like how to choose your intermittent fasting schedule based on your foot shape yeah yeah like it it was it was that type of stuff just like you know like uh the the confluence of nutrition conspiracy theories with with uh like a a fringe version of new age spirituality like further out than even like most new age spirituality it was incredible content bad content but incredible very fun to consume uh he's he's like i said very much fallen off in recent years like so uh when we talked about this when this when this email came in and you showed me that there was a david avocado wolf uh book recommendation um in this email i was just like dude i haven't heard anything from him in like three years He's not popping up on my timeline anymore. I don't see people even like sharing his stuff to debunk it. So I was like, what is he up to these days? I go to his Facebook page and now it's just like, it's, it's like, it's just boring shit. So he'll just like share an article from some like disreputable news outlet and just be like thoughts. And like, that's it. That's, that's all of his content. He's just sharing stuff two dozen times a day but it's it's like not even fun conspiracy shit it's like boring kind of like normie conspiracy shit and it's just like what are your thoughts about this and it's it's a boring media strategy 
I, I know this guy has more juice than this. He has more sauce than what he's showing on Facebook these days. And I think, I think when you listen to this, you need to go to David Avocado Wolf's Facebook page and just everything he posts, just comment, be like, bring back the old David, David Avocado Wolf. Like we, we need him to get back into like 2015 form because he was one of the funniest accounts on Facebook and he's just not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That is definitely true. Um, but anyway, yeah. So like to me at first I thought it was hilarious that I got this email and then I'll admit it was a little bit disheartening because it's like, if there was one place I thought you could get away from this absolute nonsense, I would have thought it's like, ah, I'm going to go purchase intro to health behavior psychology, third edition by professor. So-and-so. And they're like, nah, dude, read David avocado wolf. <laughs> and I'm like, shit, that's awesome. Uh, all right. What do you got? Yeah, so I have two media recommendations and one media anti-recommendation. Uh, so there are two recent shows. One is called Severance, and the other is called Slow Horses, both of them on Apple TV. If you're not a subscriber, I'm sure they have a free trial. Just watch them both and cancel. Um, but yeah, so Severance is a very uh, engrossing psychological thriller. The basic premise is that there is this company where if you work for them, they implant a chip in your head such that it completely splits your personality, where when you go home, you don't remember anything that happened during the workday. And during the workday, you can't remember anything that happened uh, when you were at home. So it, it basically splits you into two separate people that have no memory or recollection of what's going on with the other one. Um, so it, it's a cool premise, and they execute on execute on it really well. Uh, very good show, would highly recommend. And there's another show that we're currently watching called Slow Horses. It's a it's like a British crime espionage thriller type show, I would say. Uh, starring, well, I guess co-starring Gary Oldman, who he's completely unrecognizable. Like the the hair and makeup department did, really did a number on him, uh, but it it is very convincing. Um, he delivers a tremendous performance and it's, uh, the, the finale I think is coming up this week. So, uh, Lindsay and I are still waiting to see if they'll stick the landing, but thus far it's, it's been a very, very good show. We, we have a, a huge soft spot for like prestige British crime shows. I don't know why, but like the, the first couple seasons of Luther, very, very good, um, Broadchurch, incredible television, uh, and thus far, Slow Horses is no exception. It's it's a very good show. And my media anti-recommendation, I don't know why I did this to myself, um, but went on Netflix and it was recommending uh, a new show called Is It Cake? Uh, and the entire premise is bakers who bake very, who bake cakes that look like very realistic versions of things that aren't cakes compete to see who can make the most realistic looking uh, uh, cakes that look like burgers or shoes or whatever. And my God, it is it is the second most painful 30 minutes of television I've ever consumed. The, the most painful is this other Netflix show called I Can See Your Voice, which holy shit, that show is so bad. But Is It Cake is the second worst episode of television I've ever seen. So if you want to 
if you just want to have a bad fucking time and consume trash content, check out Is It Cake. And if you value your time and sanity, do not check out Is It Cake. Perfect. Yep. All right. Uh, so hopefully that'll help people make their uh, television decisions coming up here. Uh, this is our first two-hour episode in a while. God um, damn it. No, <laughs> no negative comments will be accepted. No hate mail will be accepted. We are framing this as a two-part podcast. So this is actually two episodes, but we're going to release them simultaneously as one file with no dividing mark. Yeah. Okay. So uh, three this, people. This, this is our version of uh, Speaker Box and the Love Below. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're going to have like three or four people who are happy, who are like, yeah, bring back the two hour episodes. And then a lot of people are like, hey, my work commute is not this long. So Anyway, we will get back to our normal form and get closer to an hour moving forward. But anyway, uh, we really appreciate you joining us in this special uh, double episode. Like I mentioned, uh, check the show notes to get the um, the best of mass issue. And if you're interested enough, go ahead and consider subscribing during our sale, which ends Tuesday, May 3rd. As always, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.